Well, hello there. Welcome to uh, a Quixote-filled evening of cannibalism here at the Deadly Analysis Podcast. Are you really going to enjoy this podcast tonight, guys? Uh, our co-host, Shayra, has promised us a perfectly replicated Buffalo Bill dance uh, by the end of the evening, except except instead of tucking in the penis, she's actually going to pop one out. Like, she's going to pull, it's going to be a reverse Buffalo Bill. She's going to untuck it, if you will. So uh, look forward to that tonight. Uh, and I have a sneaking suspicion that if we do that, uh, it's not going to be, it's no longer going to be good by horses. It's going to be good by subscribers uh, or maybe hello subscribers. Hello, freaky, weird subscribers. Maybe we need more of those subscribers. I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this. Anyway, why all the festivities tonight, you ask? Uh, well, it's because we're going to be reviewing and analyzing the 1991 psychological thriller, The Silence of the Lambs, directed by Jonathan Demme. Uh, and so the film follows Jodie Foster as Clarice Starling, a top student at the FBI's Trading Academy. And she's tasked with interviewing Dr. Hannibal Lecter, played by Anthony Hopkins, a brilliant psychiatrist who is also a violent psychopath, serving life behind bars for various acts of murder and cannibalism. And the FBI believes that Lecter may have insight into a specific case that Starling uh, is on being and you know Starling being an attractive young woman may just be able to bait and draw out Dr. Lecter. So I feel like this movie is the quintessential psychological thriller. Like there's a murder to solve, there's a person's life at stake, there's psychological bargaining, and there's just a big puzzle going on in this film. And I tend to like horror films that are dialogue intense and that minimize like drawn out sequences of grotesque violence and gore and yet at the same yet at the same time are still kind of mesmerizing and and psychologically terrifying and i think that's what this movie is um and we've covered quite a few films in this podcast that i think we've all felt were like viscerally terrifying um that you sort of feel it in your gut as it were when you're watching the movie so i'm thinking of antichrist even horizon i saw the devil quite a few others but this movie, I felt more in my head. You know what I mean? It made me think about things like the predator-prey distinction, uh, the biological and social categories of male-female in relation to power. I mean, this is largely a movie about power, in my opinion. I mean, we see we see this in the dynamics uh, within Lecter and Clarice, uh, Buffalo Bill and his surviving victim, and maybe even Clarice within the entire system of the FBI. I mean, it kind of feels like she has an uphill battle to fight as a woman agent in the FBI, as a trainee in the FBI. In fact, I mean, actually, now that I think about it, the first scene of the movie is actually Clarice climbing up like a hill, like a hillside at the beginning of the FBI training academy, uh, which I did just realized right now. That's kind of interesting. So I, I think what's interesting about uh, Silence of the Lambs um, is it's one of the first movies that I can remember where a woman is the pursuer, right? Like she's the hero who goes after the killer rather than being the victim who survives and overcomes. Um, like it's her job uh, to rescue the maiden and go up against the beast. And I, I found that interesting and a kind of rare, quite frankly, at least I, when I was watching this movie, it's one of the things I thought of. Uh, it's one of the earlier versions of a movie like this. Um, and I think the film wants us to know that this is rare. Like when you watch Silence of the Lambs, you get a very real sense that Clarice is alone in a man's world, right? Like from the way the FBI agent Jack Crawford direct, uh, directs her to do certain things to the way Dr. Chilton talks down to her, to the way the police officers give her that sort of like 
famous what the fuck moment when she directs them to move along, move along, right? Like the movie wants you to feel what it's like for a woman to be in a man's world, I think, um, and, and maybe even have the ability to exercise authority over men. Um, and on the flip side of that, and I think what makes this movie kind of a classic is that we see a very real fragility with Clarice when she interacts with Lecter, for example. And I think in many ways he exploits that with the stories that he's able to pull from her. So I think this film does a fantastic dance of painting Clarice as a genuinely complex character. She's not a beautiful victim. She's not overcompensating for being a woman by pushing men around in some, you know, kind of misandrist way, right? Like she's just a very genuinely complex and sincere character who's after the truth. It, it, the truth. It reminds me very heavily of Dana Scully in the X Files. Um, you know, I feel like Chris, like Chris Carter had to have taken some Clarice Starling. Uh, when he created Dana Scully. Like, it's uncanny how similar they feel as characters. And on that note, this is like a super, like, level five MRA trigger warning, like we're about to go full SJW snowflake mode. Uh, but, like, an obvious analysis of this movie is a very specific type of feminist analysis that has to do with something called the male gaze. So you'll hear us talking about that a little bit tonight. Uh, which is a term coined by the feminist film critic Laura Mulvey in her, essay, in her essay, Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema. And I actually think that that idea, which we're going to unpack in a second, has earlier ties or at least builds from Lacan's idea of like the gaze, the idea of the gaze. So the, not like, not like, not the gaze, you know, like, hey, we got to watch out for those gaze, like the gaze, like eyeballs gaze, sorry. Uh, that the idea that one can have like an anxious state of mind um, that comes with the self-awareness that one can be seen and be looked at, right? And so Mulvey takes that and argues that many films, not all, but many films reflect a kind of male dominance in that regard, whether consciously or subconsciously. So for example, very often a film will take the viewer, uh, 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 they'll make the viewer take on the perspective of a heterosexual man, which often involves objectifying women in one way or another on the screen. And and a lot of times it isn't even that obvious. It's almost a subjective bias in a lot of ways. Uh, the James Bond films are notorious for this. Uh, one recent example that comes to mind uh, is the famous shot of Harley Quinn bending over with her bat in the Suicide Squad movie, right? Like every trailer you see has Harley Quinn bending over in front of the camera with her bat for that movie. So, I mean, there's a thousand and one examples that you can think of. So, so says this kind of feminist analysis that this has the effect of denying female agency and personhood, and it relegates the woman to being pretty much a thing for male viewing pleasure, right? And so what the Silence of the Lambs does is it subverts the male gaze we see Clarice Starling as a complex person and not just an object. We see, uh, you know, we, we see the perspective that receives the male gaze in this movie. Like, think of the scene where, again, where she tells all those, like, local plebeian police officers to move along. You, the viewer, are meant to feel intimidated just like she does. You're supposed to feel outnumbered just like she does. Um, the same experience occurs at the start of the film when Clarice is at the FBI in the elevator and, you know, all those men in like red, uh, like red T-shirts are in the elevator with her. You're taking on the perspective 
of this woman FBI agent in what is largely a male-dominated institution. She feels awkward, and so you feel awkward, right? And you'll see this uh, perspectivizing keyed into the film like all over the place. I think of the scene where Clarice is explaining um, the senator's way of imploring the killer to let her daughter go, right? uh, Or not Clarice, but the senator says her daughter's name specifically, like in every sentence as she's imploring the killer. And Clarice explains that uh, if he, Buffalo Bill, sees her as a person and not just an object, it's harder to tear her up. Right. So it seems to me that a big part of this movie is the reversal of the male gaze and the, the, the placement of a woman as a pursuer, like the knight in shining armor, as an item of dominance um, and, and the struggle therein of, of being a kind of person in a world that largely has it reversed. Um, and I mean, there's obviously, you know, other and maybe even even larger themes related to like transformation with all of the moths and the butterflies. But I, I sort of wanted to start with Clarice and her agency as a point of entry because I think this is a fairly unique aspect of this movie. Um, so so let's start with that. Um, what did you guys think of how this movie portrayed Clarice Starling, specifically her place in the FBI and her interactions with men in positions of power? Well, I think you hit a lot of the nails right on the head there, Noah. You were uh, talking... I, I And let's talk very specifically about how this is done from Demi's perspective and how this is done from a uh, filmmaking and artistic perspective. I mean, obviously, we've got the casting of Jodie Foster, who's uh, shorter than all of the other men in the elevator. We've also got uh, these follow shots that start the movie where we it seems as though we are pursuing her. And so we're putting her in a diminutive position even from the beginning. And then, of course, it reverses that through the plot of the film. Uh, there are parts of the film where we are getting uh, POV shots where Lecter is staring directly into the camera as as he is talking to her, but she is staring camera left, I believe, camera left or camera right. So she is not participating in this these single POVs, whereas he is. So uh, in a lot of cases, it is as though he is, uh, w- the camera is in the position of Clarice in those, uh, in those scenes. And so it is almost as though we are put in the same diminutive position that Clarice is, is put into. Uh, we also get the only time in which she is doing a POV shot, uh, two single POV shots, is when she is talking to another woman. Uh, and that is when she is trying to parse out uh, Heck Lecter's notes on the, uh, the, the case file. So... Um, or Delia, I believe is her name, uh, she is looking straight into the camera and Starling is looking straight into the camera. And that's the only time in which we get uh, alternating POV shots. Every other time, um, it's a character looking into the camera and then when it sl- switches to uh, Jodie Foster's coverage, she's looking either camera left or ca- camera right. So all of these work in a way to put us in Starling's position as she is, uh, as you rightly say, the victim of a male gaze, uh, or 
let, let's not say victim of male gaze, but rather let's say that she is the subject of male gaze. And I think the plot of this film and the thematic through line of this film uh, involves her rising above the stations that are are that she is put into. And so it becomes this not just redemptive arc, but uh, an arc of overcoming. And it's not overcoming the the the, the situation like solving the mystery as much as it's overcoming the um, the misogynist nature of the environment around her. And I think that's a profound and and incredible uh, magic trick, one of the many magic tricks that this film pulls off. I noticed that when Clarice first interacts with Dr. Lecter, um, there's a big power play between them where he establishes dominance. But you'll notice within, I think there's only four scenes with them together in this entire movie. And in the first one, I think in the first one or two, she's sitting and he's standing. So there's that sort of thing going on. There's that power play going on. There's she's sitting, he's standing. And then by the end, she's standing all, all, like face to face with him. I uh, cannot I thought... wait. I cannot wait to talk about that scene because yeah. that is, I, I think that is a profoundly well-directed and well-acted scene. And just parsing that scene frame by frame, uh, you can learn a ton about directing and acting just through that scene. But yeah, I, I want to go through that scene like almost frame by frame and discuss that one. But yeah, I, you're right that she is always in a diminutive position over, um, under him and he even gives her these winks during that scene among others so uh we'll we, yeah we'll get into that scene a lot i think i i just want to disagree with you guys there was one moment where she was straight on just like lecter before she stands um and they're having their back and forth yes she is looking off to the side but there is one moment where we see her straight on and she's looking at the camera and it is when he is talking about how these serial killers get trophies and she goes, uh, but you didn't keep any trophies, you ate them, you know, and that was the only time. And you can actually see he flinches and looks away when she says that she got him. And so um, there was one little time during that back and forth where she seemed to have the head on and he turned and looked to the side. Really, what I think of, though, in this particular um, dynamic that they have, though, is the, the question that is raised in my mind is like, why was this different than every other interaction that he's um, it's implied that he's had before this? Right. So it doesn't seem to me that it's it's going to be all that different from every his doctor. His, you know, the, the FBI director Crawford, who presumably came in and talked to him, you know, any number of other agents who went in and tried to get something out of this guy and seemed to apparently have no luck at doing so. They gave her the advice of, you know, do this, do that. Don't take anything from him. Don't, you know, let him get inside your head. Don't give him any personal information. And she seems to break all of these rules. And so. Whatever I'm thinking about the power dynamics here, it sounds like they probably all went on all these men presumably went in with these same thoughts in their head about how do I have power over this person, whereas the dynamic between the two of them did just seem to be a little bit of a give and take. And so I'm kind of like wondering what if that was intended to be sort of the difference and what made him kind of like um, I don't know if attracted is the right word, but like interested in her a little bit more than the average person. 
you know? I, mean, I think it was auth authenticity seems to sure. be. Yeah, I think it's authenticity. I wonder, I wondered this too. I'm, I'm glad you're bringing this up because to me, I, I was like, hey, like she's probably the, the umpteenth person who's who's come in there. What's going on? What's the difference? And, you know, the film obviously indicates that she's the first female that comes in there. But I think I, I think it's more complicated than that. It seems to me. So I think it's a combination of what Shayra just said, where she basically catches the only scene in this movie where Lecter looks flummoxed is when she says, no, you ate yours. And he looks down to the side and he's all it's the only time you see him introspecting thinking about himself. That's the only scene in the entire film where you see him do that. So there's that mixed with the fact that she's a trainee. So he is under the assumption when he finds that she's a trainee that I can really fuck with her. But then she flips it and makes him think about himself and it kind of throws him for a loop. And he's more interested at that point. Like it's exactly, he's, she's a very smart trainee. And so I think it has less to do maybe with being a female and more, I think, with the fact that he his expectations were dashed do you know what i mean so that that would be my that would be the way i looked at it uh, well i'll just compliment ben real quick because i think his word attraction is not only i think i think that's right on because in an odd way this is a love story people will say we're in love this is a a story about two people falling in love at least Elector falling in love with Clarice, and I wouldn't be surprised if there isn't some love of the Clarice, or at least admiration that she has for him by the end of it. Uh, so I, I don't think you're going too far as to say the word attraction. I'm sorry, Shayra, go ahead. I disagree with you, Jim. Um, only in that I believe that they have a relationship where they are attracted to each other, but I think it's more like a father-daughter kind of a, an attraction, a father-daughter kind of love. And almost to the point of it being like Phantom of the Opera, where there is kind of a romantic style to it, but it's a monster and a young girl. He's trying to make her like a protege where he trains her and makes her the best so that everybody can know that he helped make her the best. If, if she succeeds, then he's succeeding. And then it shows how amazing he is in being um, a kind of a teacher and a father figure. And the only reason why I say that I believe that that's the case in almost every single scene where she's around a guy. He is leering at her, doing the male gaze, uh, coming on to her, looking down on her. And you actually, there's a scene where he decides to look at her file. And he turns and he leans on the wall and he like licks his finger and he starts flipping through the pages and looks at her like this. And it feels like what a dad would do, like, all right, you're gonna play FBI, okay. Let's see what you got here. And it doesn't seem like he's going, oh, yeah, baby, I want to come on to you. It just feels more like, he oh, literally, condescending. He literally winks at her during just that moment you're talking about. Like, that is one yeah. of the moments. You know, and then he does one of the, I can't wink. Oh, no. But, but, <laughs> but, a wink, but a wink is not a wink is not necessarily sexual at all. No, you, it's not. I've seen dads wink at daughters. Fuck. <laughs> the way that I would describe the relationship is probably a little bit complicated. So now that you you brought up Phantom of the Opera, I I do want to just analyze that. Let's just go ahead and use that as kind of like a basis for comparison. So whenever you have Eric the Phantom, uh, sort of trying to take ownership over over um, uh, Christine. There we go, Christine Daae. 
um, there's a scene at which like she questions his sort of like motives and he explicitly says that he can't kind of like engage in uh, pleasures of the flesh because of the disease that kind of took his face. And so like that sort of eliminates the sexual thing. But you've also got to think that he does get a little bit jealous about the fact that she has a romantic re- interest in a relationship and um, uh, fuck Rolf. R. Raul. Raul. Excuse me. Yeah, Raul. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. So, yeah, I mean, like, there's there's definitely kind of like this romantic dynamic there, I think, when you think about that. It's just sort of, like, complicated because there is kind of like the father figure. I am your angel. I protect you. I teach you. I guide you. I have ownership over you. But there's also kind of, like, mixed in with this sort of, like, romantic love and their sort of, like, power struggle relationship. And I think that's actually a pretty good way to sort of compare that and talk about Hannibal's sort of attraction, if we want to call it that, to Clarice. I... I'm not so sure that is entirely sexual, but obviously there is some kind of like an intellectual interest there. You have that scene where he kind of like rubs her finger when they briefly touch whenever they exchange the file in the cage. And then, of course, if we want to look up a little bit forward to the sequel and Hannibal, he actually does kind of like kiss her pretty hard. Um, so I know we're just talking about Silence of the Lambs in this, but I mean, you got to throw that out there, too. I just I don't know. I wouldn't necessarily call it a traditional romantic relationship. It's complicated. It's very, very complicated. But I wouldn't say that it's purely father-daughter platonic either like maybe it's kind of like mixed up in a few different levels yeah i mean on this on this podcast at least for me the books don't matter and the sequels don't matter but it should be noted that at the end of the book the hannibal the sequel to silence of the lambs they run off together they are they end up together and they run off together and they are uh, last seen in an opera house in florence together um it's it's very explicitly a love story in uh in hannibal and that's not something that actually made the theatrical cut of the uh the sequel and the adaptation uh in part because jodie foster disagreed with that but i think that's precisely what thomas harris wanted uh when he wrote hannibal the book now once again the books don't matter uh, and even the sequels don't matter, especially in in uh, in this. But I I think that there's certainly a sensuality to that last touch. Um, he strokes her finger. She of course doesn't stroke stroke his. Um, he strokes her finger as he's passing her the case file through the bars in the in their last meeting together. Um, and I think that I I mean we're we've got off on the uh, are they in love and that was just because you said the word attraction Ben but uh, I I nevertheless think of this as a really weird and odd love story um, among other things that this movie is doing. There's got to be a Lecter Clarice porno out there. There's got to be. I'm sure there is. I mean yeah. the internet would not disappoint us when it comes to that. Yeah. If you're watching this, viewers, find that and see if that's a thing. We're yeah, gonna do it anyway. We're we're, we're gonna actually. we're gonna do. Okay, I'm gonna do it anyway. <laughs> but uh, yeah, well, look. Here's one of the things I'll say. No matter how we parse out the relationship with Lecter and Clarice, I think I think it's safe to say that he treats her with the most complexity compared to anyone else in the movie. I think that I think he still has some some motives that are that are bad uh i I feel like Lecter looks at clarice as kind of in the worst light she's a pet project to him but she is still i think the object of more complexity than let's say chilton who sees her as an object of sex 
uh, as uh, Crawford, who sees her as kind of a trainee, uh, as a as a as a as a kind of utility, a thing to get what he wants. Um, I think Lecter sees her in a light that is better than everyone else in this movie. Uh, every other male character in this movie, regardless of how we cash it out. Um, and I think he sees her with the most clarity and treats her with the most respect. Um, so I think we would all agree on that. So, yeah. I, I would suggest that uh, Lecter certainly falls in love with her because she is able to be genuine with her with him um, because she gives him the one thing that he lacks and that is a um, emotional and intellectual stimulation and challenge Jack Crawford and Frederick Chilton are to him pawns on a chessboard uh, they treat him diminutively. There's that one moment where Chilton is lying down saying, hey, they were selling you vacations and all of that stuff. There wasn't a deal. They played you. And of course, at when we get the single of Lecter, he is bound and uh, he's got the face mask on. But it is with Clarice that she is able to open up to him with the one thing that he hasn't been able to uh, interact with for all of his time in prison, and that is a psychological profile that is interesting, uh, a a psychological damage that is um, reachable and understandable, and a intellectual challenge that no one else in the in his world is able to offer him, and. That's, I mean, one of the many ma magic tricks that this film pulls off, magic trick number two, is it almost makes the audience be able to understand the mind and almost sympathize with the mind of a psychopath uh, with, with Lecter. Uh, Lecter is irresistibly charming at the beginning of this film. Um, you, we hear all of these nasty things about how he has, you know, eaten a nurse and eaten other people. He even admits that a census taker once tried to test him and he ate his liver. Um, and, but we don't see him engage in any violence up until the end, until the, 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 um, beginning of the third act of the film and that, uh, or end of the second act, I'm sorry. Um, and I, up until that point, it's almost as though we disbelieve all of these stories that we've heard about it. It couldn't possibly be that this person who is so charming before us is is also a psychopathic killer. That's not possible. He's so delightful. Um, and this is this is a, a, a part of his complex character that I think draws us into uh, almost sympathizing and understanding him. Um, up until, of course, the part where we actually see him get to go, uh, get to be violent, and uh, in, in, of course, the genius prison escape scene. It's only there that we realize that he's a monster, but up until that time, he comes off as just wonderfully polite, and, and, uh, and somebody you'd almost want to be friends with, un until, of course, the, the, the escape scene. One point of contention there, um, 
I I do think that I want to go back to the scene where they're talking about the results of what Miggs does. And I think they make it very clear that he essentially whispers to Miggs until Miggs decides to kill himself. And I think that's meant yes. to just to show you sort of the next level kind of power that he has over other people and make you even more terrified of him in line with that sort of like charming ability that he has. In fact, I mean, in that scene where she's where Clarice is walking down that hallway and you kind of have this ex escalate or escalation of sort of weirdness of the people who are in the cell. So you've got like the first guy who kind of acts like your stereotypical crazy person. The second cell where this guy is just sort of like quietly staring off into nothing. The third guy, which is Miggs, um, saying this just horrible random shit to her. And then you have this person in the last cell that seems totally, completely put together. And that's, I think, meant to show him as being the most terrifying monster as all, as the monster that you don't recognize as a monster. And then, of course, you get that power play where he talks to somebody until they're killing themselves. <laughs> so, I mean, in that one scene, I do think you get the sense at least that he is some kind of a monster, just not a monster that you would expect from from any sort of movie that you've seen before. Yeah, I think this film does a great job of building the expectation with Lecter. This is one of the great things that this movie does. So the movie sets us up with um, with uh, Dr. Chilton's like description of Lecter being like, oh, it's so, so rare to capture a psychopath alive. He's our prized possession. And then you have Clarice walking past all of these other dysfunctional inmates, sort of each person getting worse as she goes along. Like your expectations are this guy is going to be a monster, you know, foaming at the mouth and you see him and he's standing there with a smile on his face. Um, and that is a great way to introduce someone like Hannibal Lecter. I, I, that's one of the things that the film does really well is managing the expectation of Lecter. And when you see him just being like, this is this is it. This is the monster. And there's an intrigue there. There's an interest there. Um, and I, I've never forgotten that ever since I was a kid. I was like, oh, man, this guy's going to be. I always thought the guy was going to be climbing up the walls, foaming at the mouth, biting the window and shit. And no, he's just standing there looking all nonchalant and professional. I was like, that's kind of scary or eerie, weird. I don't like this. Well, like, that's the was, point. So it was that scene. So we'll we'll just dive into that scene now. Um, that scene was used in an acting class that I took to demonstrate something that they referred to as status. Now, this, of course, is different than class or social status or anything like that. It's uh, something that was used very specifically in this in this curriculum as A status and B status. Now, A status is no vocal affect, uh, stillness, and just talking straight to the camera, no movement of the face, no movement of the voice. Uh, complete power over your words and complete power over the person to whom you're talking to. Now, this I, is turning me on. Is that supposed to happen? No. Uh, I'm sorry. But if it is, then that's just, uh, <laughs> that's just because I do A status so well. Uh, and then B status is everything else. It's but large vocal movements. It's different or large physical movements. It's different vocal inflections. It's craziness. It's, it's every, it's everything that Jim Carrey built his career on. And so this, this particular acting class, uh, judged a status as 100 and B status, just crazy commedia del arte acting as a, a 
zero uh, and and so there was this this spectrum that was that was built and so the challenge for us as actors were to be able to master both um but in the scene analysis of this film, and I saw that like this was 20 years ago, and I still remember it. It's it's how um, effective this particular lesson was. So thank you, George Morrison. Um, it, it was so they analyzed the scene through the lens of status, and it was Lecter who was able to keep everything in line, his vocal inflections in line, and it was the the. The underlying conflict was Clarice trying to match him, that Clarice trying to um, reach his status. And so the underlying conflict was um, he was completely still in control. And so she was trying to maintain control over her own body and over her own vocal inflections and unable to do so because she was so un at so uneased by him. And this was, it was sort of a fascinating aha moment to how this scene gets built because it is, it, it's, it, it gives him all of the power and her trying to reach that uh, level of power and influence that he has through uh, nonverbal cues and through, um, uh, and occasionally through um, moderating her voice. And of course, she he always attempts to undercut her, mimicking her accent, and the camera also undercuts her because when he's dressing her down, it's the only camera movement in the entire scene. The camera sort of pushes her to the side, pushes her so that she drifts out of the, almost out of the frame. And so everything about this movie or about this scene in particular is about what you said and in your intro Noah about the movie as a whole a uh, a character who is powerless trying to gain power in a situation and in a rhetorical context that is constantly denying her power and the this particular scene this first scene between Lecter and Clarice is a microcosm of what's going on in the entire film. Yeah, very, very interesting. This uh, that interaction while we're on to it reminds me in some ways, and I, I hate to compare a classic horror film to one that we've done recently, but it reminds me of like some of the first uh, interactions in Creep, where uh, it, it, which is about power, which is about a psychopath and and power and manipulation. I mean, when we think of Lecter's first interaction with Clarice. The first thing he does is he demands that she move closer and show her ID, right? And she complies. There's a compliance piece to this, very similar to what we discussed in Creep and in Creep 2, um, which is that that's what a psychopath does. They gauge in that sort of way, right? She sits down. He stands up. Uh, in their dialogue, you'll notice that this is also, and I think you mentioned this, Jim, like how it's filmed, where Lecter's face will take up the entire screen, and Clarice's face takes up about half of it when they're having their back and forth. And that projects the image of dominance and power between the two. Um, so this was definitely something that was thought about when this movie was filmed. And you get that, uh, that complexity and that authenticity um, as you're watching it. Like you, you, it, it's, um, it's obviously something that you're supposed to take away from this. It's very thick in the film. 
And I uh, I dug that. Yeah, I want to draw. I I think you draw an interesting contrast, but I want to I want to draw another contrast or an interesting comparison. But I want to draw a bit of a contrast between Creep and um, Science of the Lambs because Creep he establishes dominance through B status moments. Like it's actually the Patrick Rice character who is relatively still, relatively solid, stolid, but it's the Mark Duplass character who's like, oh, we're going to have so much fun, man. We're going to have so much fun. And it's all, it's through B status, through, through extra, uh, extra movement that he's trying to draw out this uh, taciturn character into his, crazy manic world and it's it's almost the opposite but it still achieves the same effect i mean it's one of the things that i i had a difference with in this particular acting school because they seem to suggest that a status was always more powerful and better than b status but that's not always true uh speaking as a relatively a status person in real life Oh yeah, I, you've been flailing your limbs all around this entire time. So I don't. Yeah, I was, I was like, I see A status, B status. Let's let's judge how much he's moving around. Sorry. Hey, so uh, there's a lot of like bird stuff going on in this movie. There's obviously moth transformation stuff. That's the obvious stuff, and we'll probably get into that. But like a starling is a type of bird. Everyone knows that. Um, there's constant tweeting of birds in almost every other scene in this movie. You hear them in the background all of the time, which is very interesting. Uh, Lecter saying, "You know, fly back, fly back now to school, Starling. Fly, fly." What, what's, what's, what's the significance of the birds? It seems to me obvious that the significance of the moth and Lecter says this: that the caterpillar and the moth is one of transformation. Transformation may be one of the larger thematic elements of this movie. We'll get into that, but I want to, I want to kind of put that aside for a second and ask, what is going on with? the bird stuff in this movie with starling and fly fly away and all of that did what do you guys think there's anything there i i i have no answer i just thought it was interesting that it was put everywhere and i do it maybe it's a it's a book thing that i'm missing so i, I was curious if any of you guys had any insight my idea about this is that clarice is essentially a bird trapped in a cage of her own fears and so we do think about the transformation themes in this film um, obviously, if you take literally the account at the end where we have kind of that that fan or whatever it is turning back and forth, we see two butterflies facing each other. And then in the end, we see one larger butterfly who has presumably taken dominance, you know, um, and I think that's that's meant to kind of like be a metaphor for the relationship between Clarice and Bill. But we also have the title Silence of the Lambs referring back to the story that Clarice tells Dr. Lecter about when she was a child and how she woke up in the middle of the night hearing lambs screaming. She wanted to save at least one, and that sort of ties into her entire life's career choice, becoming an FBI agent, saving at least one person from this monster who's trying to kill all these different girls and so on for this sadistic purpose. And so I think it's implied that she's sort of trapped by that fear. Um, the reason that she needs to transform is to sort of get away from that and um, kind of like have dominance and control over that. And the entire or the way that she is going to do that is by capturing Bill, of course. But before that, you know, she is waking up every single night. Not maybe not every single night, but she's waking up in the, in the middle of the night, hearing these screams. It sort of dominates the entire way she thinks about her life. Um, it comes up obviously in the themes about her father. Like obviously, she was only spent or sent to this terrifying place because of the death of her parents. 
you know, her entire narrative sort of comes back to this fear that she feels and that was inspired by that scene. And so if we do sort of see her as represented by a bird, obviously there are many birds in this film, as you were talking about, different bird sounds and stuff like that. And I think in general, they're meant to be symbols of freedom. You know, the power of flight, obviously, I think in general implies freedom. But with her, she's very clearly trapped. And so I really think that's kind of like what the comparison is there that's being drawn is that, you know, you have sort of this ideal of freedom away from one's fear and one's, you know, inner conflicts and troubles. Um, and she just doesn't have that. Which I think, which I think ultimately leads into the idea of transformation. Being trapped and free is kind of another way of saying being one thing and then transformed into another, like like being in one state and then overcoming it and being something else. I, I feel like, I mean, maybe we'll get into that, right? Like transformation is is a key theme in this movie for almost every character, almost every major character, like. We think of Clarice entering a, a man's world, right? Whereas uh, Buffalo Bill wants to be a desirable woman. We have in Clarice an already desirable woman, want, uh, you know, wanting to uh, be a particular thing in a world of men, wanting to, you know, being I, I just the fact of being an FBI trainee in the process of transformation to a full-fledged FBI member is transition itself, right? Transformation itself. Uh, Buffalo Bill trying to enter a woman's world by changing his gender, which we can get into. Uh, Lecter, I, I'm thinking of Lecter, a, a psychopath who is trapped in a cage helping the FBI, transforming into something. He's helping the FBI of all things. Um, the victim, one of the victims, Frederica, I think is her name, you know, um, wanting to be skinny, right? You see her uh, with uh, pictures of Madonna. She's a little overweight. There's pictures of Madonna. There's a skinny ballerina. Uh, in her room, you get all of these uh, items that sort of show she wanted to be this one particular thing, diet books, um, and, uh, you know, and, and and she's inevitably killed. But so the, the idea of like transformation and especially with the idea of moths and um, uh, 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 transition into being a butterfly, all of that is all over this movie, people. But I think there's even something more fundamental than that, like transformation is only important if the status quo is not satisfactory, right? Like if you're not okay with where you at, with where you're at, you want to transform. So let's talk about that with regard to Lecter, Clarice, Buffalo Bill. Like, what did you guys think of of transformation as a key indicator of what's going on in this movie? All right, let's talk about Buffalo Bill for a second. Then, I think what's most interesting about Buffalo Bill's situation, whatever his real name actually is. I don't know if we ever got James Gum's real name. Um, it says his name's Jack or something like that whenever Clarice finally meets him. Anyway, so let's just call him Bill. Um, it's interesting because Lecter says that Bill is not a real transsexual, right? And so like I, I thought that was sort of an interesting sort of diagnosis because they had one of the one of the things that i thought was going to be really problematic about this movie is how they negatively portrayed the trans community like obviously the main sort of antagonist the main villain is this trans person who is killing because he wants to be a woman so that's kind of like a problematic message but they make a point for for clarice to have a line that says that there's nothing in the literature that ties um you know trans the trans community to to violence against others and and uh Lecter specifically calls out and says, well, Bill is not actually a, a trans person per se. It's just that Bill is not comfortable with how Bill identifies. It's, it's like there's a discomfort with the identity that may not necessarily be tied with gender, but that 
Bill sort of like interprets as tying it to gender. You know what I mean? I mean, so it's like it's really just sort of like a discomfort. And so I think that goes back to know what you were saying is that the impetus for transformation is always some kind of like a discomfort, even if we can't really put a finger on it. You know, when we have this unease and this discomfort with who we are deep down inside, that causes us to act in ways to try to alleviate that. We're going to do something to try and change about ourselves, about our situation. And of course, depending on the person, that's just going to come out in many different potential kinds of ways. Um, I think in this particular case, obviously, we see one path that's a little bit more self-destructive and destructive of others and another path that sort of seeks to rectify itself by helping others. You know what I mean? Um, and as far as Lecter, um, that one's a little bit tough. Um Obviously, like Lecter really just just I think he wants to be able to get free, obviously, like that's his whole kind of like thing. And he achieves that by the end of the movie. Um, but it's not a personal transformation in the same way that Clarice or Bill transformed. I don't think it's it's something fundamentally different than what we see with them, where they both have this this thing that like just sort of like resides deep down that causes them to make different sorts of life choices. And then one just sort of happens to win out over the other, because obviously there are two independent transformations sort of climax with a clash between the two and only one can sort of survive. There can be only one, you know what I mean? Um, but yeah, with, uh, with Lecter, I think it's something fundamentally different. Yeah. I think I can bounce off that a little bit, Ben. I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. I like how you sort of characterize Buffalo Bill's, uh, character and, and his, his inner insecurities. Um, it should be of note that the trans community, um, had some things to say about this, uh, this film and Demi did work to um, promote the trans community, but he never actually apologized for the film. He came short of apologizing for the film, but of course did did work to uh, promote this trans community's um, agendas and and um, search for equality for the trans community. And I I think you nail him right on. I however I don't know if Clarice. Um, I, I think her transformation is somewhat different. It's uh, her environment is what causes her to um, causes insecurity in her. But she herself is relatively secure in who she is as a person. Um, she's relatively secure in her abilities. She's relatively secure in who she is fundamentally, uh, despite the fact that she has undergone this trauma associated with her father and associated with the lambs, et cetera, et cetera. But I think she knows who she is and she's relatively happy with who she is. Same thing is true with Lecter. His environment is the thing that he uh, wants to transform against. He wants to, of course, escape from prison, which he eventually does. Um, and he, but I think he's relatively secure in who he is. He thinks he's, he thinks of himself as a rather sophisticated person uh, with rather sophisticated tastes uh, up to and including human flesh. And uh, so I, I, I think that there's sort of a difference in the way transformation is uh, perceived within the Buffalo Bill character and within what is perceived in uh, Clarice Starling and Hannibal Lecter. Both of them seem relatively secure in who they are. Rather than transform, maybe we would say with those characters, it's transcend. Right. Uh, I trans think that's perfect word for it. No. Yes. 
I don't know. I, I still think it's a little bit more of a transform, even though it's not quite as obvious with Clarice. We just don't find out about that sort of motivation until a little bit later in the film. <clears throat> like the the obviously like the main the backbone of the plot here is going to be there's this serial killer named Buffalo Bill and he's killing women to turn them into a woman suit. Um, like that's kind of like the, the storyline that we're following here. That's sort of like the core of the plot. Um, and obviously we have this sort of like hero FBI agent who we see as an underdog. She's doing the same thing. She seems like very well put together. And then at some point we find out, well, no, she actually Lecter is able to dig this out of her, that she has this really extremely traumatic experience that threw her into an orphanage that caused her to pursue her father's line of work who wanted to be able to save people because she was sort of left with this impression of screaming children and she needs to save at least one person. If she can save any one person from this horrible thing that's going on, she needs to be able to do it. And if she can do that, then she's going to be okay and she's going to feel better about herself. And I think it's it's meant to carry a lot of weight. I really think that, that final sort of breakthrough for her is meant to be an aha moment, a real sort of revelation in her character. Because, yes, again, like for most of the movie, we see this person that you're talking about who seems to be doing very well in her sort of struggle for power in a man's world. But the thing that fuels her struggle for power and her assertion of dominance in this world is this sort of like underlying fear and this fire that causes her to need to transform and change into a more powerful person so she can have control over that fear. I, I really think that's what she's about. So, number one, when it comes to the love shit, um, and I know I'm going all the way back like an hour ago, but I've been holding all this shit in, okay? <laughs> Whew. With the love shit. Uh, if it is a love story, I, I'm not going to try to go too much into the sequels or the prequels, but the exact same scenario happens with Will. Do you think that Hannibal is bisexual then? I would be okay with it if he is. I think he is just fascinated with human beings. I think he's fascinated with psychology. I think he's fascinated with what motivates people. And uh, yeah, I I can certainly... I think if there is going to be a uh, Clarice Hannibal porn, it should definitely include a subplot involving Will Graham uh, and a gay sex Okay, fair enough, fair enough. I am Googling this shit right now. Like, uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. Um, Okay. And then the other thing, of course, the dogs start barking again. I would like to go back to Buffalo Bill. Um, And Ben, you almost said word for word a lot of the stuff I wanted to say um, about Buffalo Bill. But I want to throw this out here. I did watch the the film again yesterday with um, my trans best friend. So I did get a lot of insight from her about everything. And the conclusion we came to is this is absolutely not a trans person at all. Um, Not only is it just implied, but it's also blatantly said over and over and over again. And this is the reason why Bill could not get the surgery um, and then decided to act out. And you actually know that he went to three different hospitals trying to get this surgery. And they determined that, no, you are not trans. You are absolutely not. And here's what I feel is. He is one of those guys that uses women as objects and trophies. And you see this in a scene, and it's like a blink of an eye, but you see it in a scene when she's going through his basement area. You see three pictures of him with naked type stripper type girls like sitting on his lap like a trophy and I think it is actually an extension of him 
trophying women, which is something that a lot of men do, where they're like, look at how amazing I am because I have this hot girlfriend or this hot wife. So I'm therefore, by extension, amazingly hot and amazingly successful and attractive. So um, I think he took it to that next level. Like, it's not just a trophy. I'm going to wear my trophy. I'm going to let the trophy be a part of who I am. And it was uh, a, a huge amount of it's it's going too far, but it's a metaphor that's talking about how um, a lot of men see the girls that they date and why they you'll see these types of guys say stuff to their girlfriends like, you know, you need to put makeup on before you leave the house. You know, you need to wear certain clothes. It makes me look good. And they'll start dictating to how uh, to women how they're supposed to dress and how they're supposed to be perceived so as to get them to look good in public. So I think it's more of an extension of that that level of misogyny and has absolutely nothing to do with trans people. The fact that people have misinterpreted it, though, has been a problem. But I think it blatantly states over and over again that Bill is not trans. And the fact that people missed that, that's their own (laughs) problem because the movie very clearly states that that trans people are actually less likely to engage in these kinds of uh, actions and behaviors. I, I just want to say before you continue, I completely agree with this. I completely agree with this. Um, and in, in many ways, the movie's progressive in that sense. This came out a long time ago, and it came out around the time, let's say about five years later, the first se- uh, four or five years later, the first season of X-Files came out. I, I mentioned Dana Scully. And um, some of the most transphobic shit you'll ever see is the first season of X-Files. There's actually an episode that is all about the fear of changing sexuality and changing gender. Um, it's one of the weirdest episodes. I forget the title of it, but it's in the first season. Um, and this movie does a really good job of explaining. I don't think Jonathan Demme needed to apologize for a goddamn thing uh, in this movie. Like they explicitly. Yeah. Yeah. And he didn't need to. Didn't need to. I mean, as it's. They explicitly say, well, he's not. And not only do they say he's not trans, they say why he's not trans. They give an argument. They get Lecter gives a damn good reason that this guy it's it's the problem with Buffalo Bill in this movie is before um, the idea, you know, how do I want to put this? It's a more basic issue than gender dysphoria. It has to do with the hatred of the self, hatred of the self. Not necessarily wanting to change sexes, but something more fundamentally deeper, more disturbed. Um, I don't know if I want to use the word disturbed, but but it's definitely more fundamental, you know. Um, so it, it, there's it, so the film at least gives reasons. It gives an argument. It underlies why Bill is is not really trans, and I that is pretty fucking progressive in the '80s. You know what I mean? So um, yeah, yeah. Um, actually, one of the most interesting things about the having the trans uh, topic being put in, the reason why that's there is because you have a woman living in a man's world, being treated like an object, being treated horribly, having all to battle through just to do her day-to-day job, whether it is her physical uh, abilities being tested or whether it's having coworkers leering at her and asking her out on dates when she's trying to just do her job and she has to nicely and politely turn them away even though the normal reaction would be what the fuck is your problem we're working here how the hell can you do this this is a murder case what the fuck is wrong with you um but the thing that's interesting is you have this woman battling through being a woman and then you have this guy who wants to 
enact this thing. And the reason why, and it's said in the most popular line in the movie, uh, would you fuck me? I'd fuck me. The reason why he says when he does that to uh, women and would like to feel that way himself. He would like to see what it feels like to be objectified because he feels ugly and inadequate. And he would like to see what would happen if he could be in the girl's position that he's been doing to women himself. He sees something like what Clarice is going through as hot, as like, ooh, you got something good given to you. I want to have something good given to me. And it's not good. It's not good. It doesn't feel good. And if any... And if anybody ever had to experience that, they would realize how hard it is. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, my my friends that are trans are like, how can anybody say that I'm like choosing to do this? Why would I choose to have a harder time getting jobs? Why would I choose to be treated like crap from guys all the time and objectified all the time and told I'm not pretty enough all the time? Why would anyone choose to have it harder? You wouldn't choose to do that. It's because you were born that way and that's just who you are. And you want to feel like your body's right. And that's one of the reasons why you know that he's not trans. Because he is actually enacting out a, a, a sexual fantasy. As opposed to actually understanding the experience of what it is to be a woman. Which is to have hardship. And to deal with sexism on a day-to-day basis. And to constantly deal with people hitting on you and looking at you in an inappropriate way. Or, you know, like what's happened on our show where people ask my cup size when I'm discussing films you know so it's not fun (laughs) it's hard right so bill's uh created a fantasy world of what it is to be a woman and it's not reality and it's really great juxtaposition of what the reality of what it is to be a woman and what a fantasy of what it is to be a woman are and it's actually really really great writing honestly i just want to say that was a brilliant analysis that was a brilliant analysis yeah yeah and uh i that is not something i would have thought about yeah i agree sure i mean i've thought about this movie for years and i would not have come up with that um basically due to my male privilege but i i think that's an absolutely brilliant analysis of what this movie is about yeah the idea of not truly understanding what it is like not really being trans because one would have to understand at least some level of hardship and work to get there is a really interesting critique of buffalo bill i mean that that's a he wants he wants to be desired Mm -hmm. but he doesn't know what being desired costs and i mean if i'm going to pricey uh shara's point it's gonna be he wants to be desired, but he doesn't know what that really costs him. And he thinks that the only way to be desired is to become a beautiful woman because he himself desires women in the same way that we see all of the other male characters do. And we also see that in that one brilliant moment before he tries to cock the gun and shoot Clarice, he tries to stroke her hair and then tries to stroke her face and knows he can't and then tries to cock the gun and shoot her and obviously meets his end as a result. Right. I mean, there are other places in the movie that sort of support that as well. In fact, like the entire sort of breakdown of, of his psychology, I think, and the way that they're able to catch him is that, you know, what is it that you covet? He's covetous. He sees what he wants and it's about what he wants very clearly rather than what he is. 
Um, and so obviously they're able to catch him because what is it that you covet first? Well, you covet what you see every single day, which ends up being that woman that he kills first, someone that he sees that he wants probably very badly and can't have her, um, whatever it is that sort of leads him to, to have and initiate that first kill. And maybe that's sort of what is an indication of his deeper psychology is that he, he finds trouble sort of getting what he wants. So he's just going to take what he wants and become the thing that he wants rather than, become the thing that he is yeah buffalo bill's a taker and i i I like pointing to the uh, photos uh that you see in his den where he's he has like women or strippers or something i mean that that is obviously in there showing that he's whatever whether he's straight or bi or whatever the fuck however you want to describe him he's uh he's clearly someone who is trophy oriented who takes he's a taker he's not one who wants to really be he wants to take you know and um i think that's that may be largely what separates him man this is a really interesting way to look at this that i didn't think about this before that's why i love this podcast you guys are so much smarter than me fuck well and and also look at what he says when he's holding the uh the the bug the cocoon um uh chrysalis i believe he says uh so beautiful so strong and that is how he believes the transformation is going to be. That as he be, as he becomes what he thinks putting on a female skin suit is going to be, he is going to be beautiful and strong. Which most likely, I mean, given the the, the profile that is developed throughout the film, um, he's not beautiful. He's not strong. In fact, he's really weak. And in order to uh, lure women into his his trap, he has to feign uh, even weaker weakness. Uh, he has to uh, he has to pretend that one of his arms is hurt and that he's struggling with the chair in order to get Catherine into the van. Um, so I think this this Shaver's got us onto a really interesting thread, and that is the. Uh, the interplay that Buffalo Bill has, what little we see of it with the rest of the world, how he views himself in the larger social fabric and what motivates his his psychopathy. That's actually a really interesting sort of tidbit, too, because, I mean, I think if we sort of tied this into real life, I'm wondering if there was inspiration drawn from Ted Bundy using that cast um, just to sort of like feign weakness and um, harmlessness, I guess. It's like, you know, look, I'm hurt. I'm injured. What am I going to do? Um, just by the, that sort of like a manipulative sort of little thing about using a cast uh, that you don't actually need. Um, kind of an interesting little piece. That is in another movie we are going to review as well. Uh, it is a tactic that was used and has been used in many movies as well. Um, the other serial killer that Bill is based off of, I can't remember his name, but um, if you look up some of his work, it might have been Ed Game. Uh, he did take trophies from the people he killed and in fact even had a um, boob belt where he took the skin from the people's breasts and uh, sewed them together in a belt, um, made their skin into lamps and other things. And he's not the only serial killer that has actually done this. There was actually a, a very scary woman back during the Holocaust that would look at all the Jews when they were coming through and see their tattoos and she'd say I want that and they would cut their skin off and give her the skin before they would go kill the Jews and she made 
their skin into lamps and other trophies that she had in her home from their tattooed skin. So this is not even something really new. Um, seeing Buffalo Bill, I know it's gross, um, seeing Buffalo Bill <laughs> sewing up the skin and, and doing creepy stuff, it's from real life. This isn't just some fictional story that is creepy. This is real stuff that human beings have done in the past, and it's disgusting and despicable and uh, and very frightening. And who knows if anybody else is engaging in this kind of activity anymore. Um, according, according to IMDb, James Gum uh is what's noted here in imdb was the combination of three real life serial killers ed gain ted bundy and gary heidnick uh who kept women he kidnapped in a pit in his basement um so yeah I... yes and the the guy who did the pit in the basement his specific thing was he would keep a woman in there and then she would eventually die and then he'd get a new person and he would uh chop up the bits of the previous woman in with dog kibble and that would be the woman's food until she died and that was how most of the uh evidence was taken care of um so he was a very creepy and evil person in real life as well so buffalo bill is based off of some really horrible horrible people well this is definitely going to change my morning routine when I look at the mirror and fix my hair and say would you fuck me? I'd fuck me. Like I can't do that anymore now because you guys have ruined my wanting to do that. Thanks guys. Thanks. Don't forget the third line. I'd fuck me hard. Yeah, I I, was, uh, I wasn't going to go there, but yeah, I can't say that now anymore. Goodbye horses. Indeed. That's really fucking sick. I did not know any of this. All right. I have no idea how to segue out of this. Someone pick a different topic. I'm about to bark. I, I'm sorry. I actually have studied up on serial killers quite a bit. It's uh, I watch a lot of these shows and I listen to a lot of podcasts. I watch a lot of YouTube channels that focus on serial killers. So it is um, definitely something that's interesting to me. And actually, I do know how to segue uh, out of this. Um, one of the questions I wanted to ask you guys is why do you think serial killers are not really a thing anymore. And if you actually look at the timeline of serial killers, uh, you can't think of any in recent history. You can't really think of a name right off the top of your head, unless you're like a weirdo probably like me. But it's really uncommon to hear about these serial killers anymore that were very common during the time when Silence of the Lambs came out and those kinds of stories were combining some of these monsters together. And I wondered what you guys think uh, has caused the serial killer uh, stuff to stop. I, th I think the unsexy answer is that they get caught much quicker because of forensics, because of the enhancements of forensic technology. Um, I don't think anything fundamental about humanity has changed, right? I still think there are people who would be, like, I, I guess what I'm saying is, like, there are people today who get caught after one murder that if this was 1815 would get away with 20 murders. Do you know what I mean? I think that's, I think that's part of it. Um, there are still, my understanding is there still are, uh, serial killers today. Um, I think they get caught quicker, but, uh, I think, th I mean, that would be like on the surface, what I think is the first difference. I think they're still out there. They just get caught quicker, but who the fuck, I don't, I don't know. I'm pulling that out of my ass. So I don't know. Yeah, actually, I, I just pulled up an article and this is from 2014. Um, so obviously the data might be a little bit out of date, but I think what the estimates are is that about 150 ish people uh, in our country are killed per year by serial killers and that um, 
this John Douglas guy, a former chief of the FBI's elite serial crime unit and author of Mindhunter, notes that a very conservative estimate is that there are between 25 and 50 active serial killers in the United States at any given time. So, you know, I mean, that yeah, seems I, low. That seems low. Yeah, <laughs> I, perhaps I, I'm not actually sure what would be high or low. Um, I think, yes, it, it's probably the case that they, they have to be getting caught at a, at a greater rate just because of like DNA evidence, fingerprinting and just like techniques that are much better now than they used to be. But also, I, I imagine that perhaps there might be sort of this problem in the past that we've seen with sort of glorifying these people. You know, I mean, like even now we see Ted Bundy being put on Netflix and like this story with Zac Efron and making him seem all sexy and mysterious and whatever, whatever. And it's kind of messed up. And I think morally it's sort of like reprehensible in a lot of ways to sort of glorify that behavior. So maybe it could just be the case that that doesn't happen anymore. We don't give them press deals. We don't give, put them in books and movies and let them write autobiographies just because they're so fascinating and interesting. You know, I mean, maybe they just don't play it up quite as much as they used to. I mean, it might also be the case, too, that uh, in today's culture, I think we're just sort of um, approaching these sort of large scale tragedies different. I mean, like we do still see like this stuff in TV shows and like sort of like interesting little fantasy dramas and whatnot. But if we look at the news, we're not seeing serial killers. We're looking at domestic terrorists. I think that's that's really it's perhaps just the way that people are killing in the United States might be different for whatever cultural political reasons that um, perhaps could spur that on. Yeah, and I know we're recording this on a day when a mass shooting has occurred, uh, but uh, we might be airing this on a day when a mass has occurred. Three mass shootings has occurred. Three I mean, mass shootings in less than 24 hours. It's entirely possible that that could happen next week when this airs. Um, welcome to current day America. But I think there's also something... Um, significantly different between the procedurals that we see on television and Silence of the Lambs. At the end of Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal Lecter gets away. Um, he ends up being free and saying that he'll have an old friend for dinner. Um, that doesn't happen at the end of all these procedurals. At the end of all these procedurals, the serial killer gets caught. Um, at the end of every single one of them, the bad guy is vanquished. Here, one of the bad guys is vanquished, but the other bad guy is actually really quite charming and is walking very daintily toward uh, whom he is going to have for dinner that night. Yeah, but OK, so now we get into uh, the idea that I think Hannibal thinks that his killing is doing the world good when he goes and says some whispering some things to Miggs and has Miggs choke on his own tongue, he's doing that for justice for Clarice. Now we can argue whether that was over the top justice or not, but uh, the point is, is he thought he was putting justice out there. And also he's going after this uh, guy who he feels has not done him justice. And so is he like a Dexter-like character where he's taking his desire to murder and kill to try to do the world good? Or does he just have a weird fucked up sense of morality and he's just crazy? Which gets me into another point. I think you're. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. I think it gets us into another point. Is Hannibal Lecter, or at least a question, is Hannibal Lecter an existentialist hero? Does he not have his own morality that he, uh, in in Ubermensch try, in Ubermensch way, tries to enact throughout the world with which he can control? 
one of my favorite lines from the book Hannibal is the world within our with the world within my reach will not be this way. And that is something that Clarice says as she's going toward the three act climax. Um, But I am interested in Hannibal Lecter's worldview and his place in it. Does he qualify as an existentialist hero in much the same way that uh, we talked about in Ravenous and and other existentialist films? Oh, big question. Big question. I know, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm tempted to say no because he attacked a nurse. So if we're going by the film. What did she do, though? Did yeah, so that that's the question. Good? That's right. That's the question, right? Like, we can assume maybe the nurse is a little mini Chilton or kind of an asshole or something, right? Or did did Lecter wrong? And this is a response that you get from someone who is back in the call to their own, their own morality, their own paradigms. Um, I'm tempted to say no just because I don't like the idea of an ubermensch being all, almost always tied to a villain or something negative or someone who harms because they don't think, I mean, if we're going to say the word Ubermensch, we mean something very Nietzschean. And um, I don't think it's inherently negative in the way most films portray. Um, I think it's possible that in the process of, (laughs) I'm going to make up a word here, Ubermenschizing, becoming an Ubermensch, uh, that you can transcend or even go against moral paradigms, socio-political paradigms um, that may in, in fact harm other people or do things that are against the law or what are conceived conventionally as wrong. But that's not all that's involved. It's way more complicated than that. It's way more involved than that. So I don't like that idea. I think it bothers me because it plays into the idea that overcoming modern conceptions of morality is inherently a villainous um, I, I think, I, I think there's a psychopathy element to, to Hannibal Lecter that is, that runs deeper than this, that informs his need to, um, go out of the norm. I, I, I don't think it's, I, I don't think it's a well thought out desire to be free that informs Hannibal Lecter. I think it's something that's wrong with Hannibal Lecter. I think there's, there's something that makes him crazy and psychopathic there's something inherently wrong with his brain that makes him do the things that he does um i don't think that it's informed from a robust understanding of the way modern conceptions of morality and participation in sort of the social drama that we're all a part of are the the way that the thing these things are i think it's i think there's something there's something bad with his brain that that that's the starting point so i would say no I would, I, would, I would also agree with that. I think um, I, I think it's it, it would be fair to say that the sort of mass characterization of um, anyone who sort of ignores modern social uh, moral mores, whatever it is, like there's the the moral order. If anyone who kind of ignores that as um, kind of like an ubermensch is sort of again back to the discussion we had in um, Ravenous, kind of like that Ayn Rand bastardization. And in fact, I would almost say that it's indicative of a very Sclaven moralish uh, trend to say, well, anyone who does this, obviously, let's tie everything Nietzsche said back to something evil and something bad, um, because that's how we understand what he said. Um, yeah, I mean, as far as Lecter, like the the people that he kills are just people that offend his aesthetic. Like, I really think that's there's there's nothing more to it than that, honestly. Like, he that's... killed a dude for being bad at playing the flute, you know? 
<laughs> well, that's yeah. I mean, that's I have I, you ever heard someone play the flute poorly? Welcome to Jurassic Park. I'm just saying you would definitely say I mean, that's the thing is, Ben, you're I think as portrayed in this movie, it's entirely possible to make the argument that he is an ubermensch um, in the Nietzschean sense. But with the exception of the nurse, who, of course, we don't know too much about. But I think the argument against him being an existentialist hero come from the books as you correctly note, he killed somebody for being bad at the flute in the book Hannibal. Um, every I, I, You got exactly what I was going to say, and that is that uh, his personal aesthetic, that is the fine things that he enjoys, are his moral compass, not necessarily a moral compass that rises above the... Um, the pedestrian morality of the day. But within this movie, the movie that we're talking about, it's entirely possible to make that argument. I think you have to go outside the movie in order to make the counter argument. And and you uh, you make the counter argument convincingly, Ben. Although I will say Clarice called him out on this bullshit. You know, she she did definitely tell him that what he did was immoral and wrong. And that is the one point where he did flinch. Uh, where she was calling out part of his behavior was just completely disgusting and despicable. And he had to be introspective for that short time, as you said. So it it definitely is one of those things where he's like, ah, damn it. Mm, I might have been a little fucked up. <laughs> one of the things that I hate about the movie that you were watching prior to this podcast, Hannibal Rising, is it gives the most pedestrian and stupid explanation for why he becomes a cannibal and that is that other people ate his sister like that is the dumbest the dumbest origin story in the history of origin stories i always imagine that the reason he became a cannibal is because human flesh was the most delectable of all meats and that that was the reason and and we see this in the scene where he is escaping that I think there's he's appreciating music as he's also appreciating the moment of the kill and all of those things that it's it's a a aesthetic enjoyment for him rather than somebody ate my sister so I'm you become a cannibal fuck you movie and fuck you Thomas Harris for writing that cash grab of a book yeah I agree with you that that movie was freaking garbage and and actually the the interesting thing about the things that he's into and uh the stuff that he does inside of the cage when he does go full uh Hannibal um and how much he derives pleasure from it I do believe he is not human and I know I made jokes about how I was going to talk about how he's a Wendigo, but uh, hear me out. Um, so many of the characteristics he has and behaviors that he has is one of sophistication. He knows a lot of stuff. Usually that kind of knowledge comes from living for long periods of time, 
much like the vampires do. He has a heightened sense of smell and vision and other things. He can smell what kind of lotion you used to wear and just didn't wear today. Uh, he can he can spot all these different things, and he was able to talk a guy into swallowing his own tongue with his words. Not only that, in the books, he has a little bit of red fleck in his eyes. In even one of the jail guys in Silence of the Lambs, which it wasn't in the book, but he still very blatantly says, "Is this the vampire you're going to go see?" And it it and implies that he is some kind of creature. And she and she says, uh, "We don't know what." kind of creature he is um and so when you look at the scene where he is taking in the aesthetic of the kill and you actually see him as this monster um i don't know if he's a wendigo or a vampire or if he's just his own creature but i think it can be argued this is a monster movie we were even likening him to the phantom of the opera i i'm not sure creature he is but i think there's an argument to be had that is possibly something supernatural that isn't quite understood and i mean let's let's be honest that was a brilliant getaway wearing somebody's face to get put into the ambulance knowing that the people would probably not look too closely because they can't handle seeing their friend mauled in such a way and he took in the psychology of these people as well as uh, a little bit of know-how to get that kind of escape. And that's not something that any average human could do. So I am putting forth the argument that he's some kind of supernatural creature. I don't know whether he's a Wendigo and fits into the ravenous world as I joked earlier, but um, I know he's not meant to be a supernatural creature, but that's my I, argument. I would disagree with that argument because I think that takes away from the horror of the film. Um, for me, what is scary about this movie and what is interesting about this movie and what draws me into this movie like you wouldn't believe is how like how human and charming he is that I don't I think as soon as you add a supernatural element to it, it reduces its humanness and its relationship to human is what is most terrifying about it. As soon as you otherize it and make it a vampire or make it a Wendigo or make it a whatever, then I'm not as scared about it. But if you say that it's the most charming person I know who also eats people, now I'm a little bit taken aback. So quick question, did you feel that way in Ravenous? So did you feel, so I guess, did you feel that Hannibal Lecter was a more intensely fear-inducing character than Colonel Ives? Yes, absolutely. Mm, okay. Absolutely. There's not a, I mean, it, Ravenous, I, I think I even said it on a Ravenous podcast that my initial impression of this film was that it was just sort of a pulpy horror film that I yeah. enjoyed and that it didn't have and and in fact the things that attracted me to it were its existentialist themes but it was never really personal personally scary to me mm -hmm. this one is uh I mean maybe not scary per se but rather unnerving stone in my shoe kind of things to seal your phrase because this makes the argument that the most charming person you know wants to eat you rather than some Native American myth that that is not part of our current culture. Hannibal Lecter is a master of our culture. In fact, he's not only a master of our culture, he's the master of the finest of our culture. And that what's that's what makes him so 
both endearing and frightening at the same time. So that's the, I would agree with you there. That's that's the really interesting piece about this, because I, I love the fact that this, among other great horror movies, I think, communicate quite clearly that the only real monsters there are, are other people. Um, I think that's absolutely fantastic. And the fact that there are no supernatural elements, I think, explicitly um, put out there for this film does make it better. However, that being said, I do think that Lecter would make a fantastic vampire. Like if that were the thing, he would be perfect as a vampire. I think because in my view, the, the best vampires are I um, um, Anne Rice's vampires. I, you know, I just I, I kind of have to say, like, those are the ones that I would pick of the different kinds. Like, those are the best ones. And I can I can see Lecter as being a very kind of like a Lestat type of person who maybe came from old world Florence or some shit like that, has all this knowledge of, you know, old European history, et cetera, et cetera. I would totally buy that. I would 100 percent buy that story. I think I like this one better, but it makes conceptual sense perfectly. Yeah, we can see the the characteristics of a Hannibal in quite a few supernatural characters in different films. The charm, the the charmingness, charmingness, the the charm, the charm of Hannibal Lecter, uh, in that sort of the vampiric lore, his cunning, his intelligence. Um, yeah, like throwing a supernatural element. I I want to now. I want to see Lestat versus Hannibal Lecter. I'd like that needs to like. There's Godzilla versus King Kong. I want to see Lestat versus Hannibal. Lestat. Yeah lose easily yeah, I think so. too ambitious and I think so. too uh he's too ambitious and he's too governed by his whims hannibal lecter would have the uh the the jump on him easily and we see that in the scene that shayra referenced the the cunning and and genius escape scene um and once again that is a man pl- playing on the weaknesses of others. He knows that they won't look too closely at Jim. Um, I forget his last name, but his first name's Jim. Um, the man whose face he is, he assumes he knows he won't, they won't look too closely at him. So that's the identity that he assumes as a weak character. And of course that brings him into the ambulance where he's able to easily overpower the paramedics and, and the EMTs. I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's what he sort of mimics Buffalo Bill's uh, modus operandi in his own escape. And it's absolutely brilliant. And I think it's one of the most thrilling scenes in cinema because you know that he's going to get out, but you don't know how. I was on the edge of my seat while watching that that scene, even though I knew it was going to happen. Yeah, he's able to overpower the guards with his, you know, 30 frame per second. <sighs> you know, like really. Well, smooth. you know, that's like, a wait, cam- I- <sighs> you know, that's a camera effect that's uh, yeah. emphasizing yeah. his enjoyment. Yeah. Of, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. I was going to say the guard would be like, ow, ow, you know. Yeah. Anyway. Sorry, sorry. I have to. It, it actually, it it kind of reminded me of when you are seeing a performance, and you know, it's like <laughs> like he's yeah. just no, orchestrating right. his events of violence, and I I think it was meant to look ridiculous like that, but uh, to show his power, and and that is another one of the things I had thought of that made me think that he might be of some kind of other, because of how flawlessly he. Sp- splattered blood and he was like la 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 <laughs> like it was like no effort on his part and he was destroying his face uh it, it just i know it's 
meant to be that he's a real guy and that's the fear fear factor and i get all that but monsters and movies are supposed to represent mankind and he is otherworldly compared to the others he, they even present him that way when you're walking down the hall he's further away further away than where Miggs is it's as if he's this other thing and it, it really does build up that we as humans are the monsters we as humans are the bad guys we as humans are the ones that hurt others and um so I, I, I don't know. I still feel the supernatural monster thing is somewhere in there. And I think that's why he's so popular and um, everybody wants to, you know, dress like him for Halloween. You see these people, <laughs> they, they have their friend toting them around with their faces all uh, smushed in with the mask and stuff. And they have their friend rolling them around. I think that's a clever uh, who that monster is and because it's so unique i feel like he's something special um he is not just like any other guy he's very much something that i mean like you said hannibal rising came out and that was for a cash grab it's because hannibal it sells tickets people love the character the escape scene is fantastic because there's he smiles when like he gives a victorious smile when he handcuffs the first person to uh, the bars because that's when he knows he he's got it. He knows he's and the rest of it is just enjoyment. And so I think the how do you become Hannibal Lecter is you read a lot of books and you enjoy the finest things in life. Um, and he's enjoying the finest things, at least to him in that moment. Because everything after that is fait accompli. He knows what's going to happen after that. He has planned everything out meticulously. And as soon as he gets a, the first guy handcuffed to the bars, he knows what's going to happen after that. You know, if there is any scene in this movie where I would have to dis suspend a little disbelief, it's it's going to be this one, though. I'm just, like, thinking about the timeline of this entire escape plan. So he gets out of his handcuffs. He fights the guards. He wins. He's sitting there for a little while, sort of just enjoying his music. At some point, he removes the face off of one guard, changes his clothes with his guards, puts that guard on top of an, ele uh, an elevator, and sends that elevator down to the third floor. Somewhere in there, he also took this other guard, found a, a, a flag, an American flag or something like that, and took that guard, disemboweled him, and hung him up like an angel in front of not only the cage, but perfectly placed in front of this light to get like this perfect sort of like framing for the scene whenever the guards come out of the elevator and see this. Like how much when, time and work is this Wendigo. going to take? Wendigo, he's baby. Got, Wendigo. He's got all the time wins. in the world, though. He's got all the time in the world. Yes, he might be a Wendigo. But Does he? Got, I mean, because like whenever yeah, whenever we switch between the scenes, it literally seems like it happens very quickly. Yeah, they go I down did, to I the did, yeah, the guards yeah. are having a conversation. They're talking about this a little bit. They all they know he's up there. He has very limited time that he can work with. They're the, probably getting ready to go and take him out of that cage immediately because everyone's already gone. The instant, uh, the the inciting incident for that conversation is the elevator going up to five. So he's got all the he's calling the elevator up to five. So he's got all the time in the world before he calls the elevator up to five. That's the inciting incident for that. And that's in order to get the doors to open so that he could then drop the guard onto the uh, the 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 roof of the elevator on three. So he calls the elevator up to five. He is able to hold the doors open calls the elevator down to three 
steps out of the the elevator car, lets the elevator car go down, has the doors open, drops the guard on top of it, grabs the guard's face. He's already obviously dressed, um, and he lays down and waits for everybody to come. Oh, no, he fires off the two shots in order to call the guard's attention. But it's not until he fires off the two shots and the elevator goes up to five that the guards even notice anything amiss on level five aside from that like it could be three hours between the time he gets his dinner and the time he fires off his shots Mm. i'm not i'm not believing that they're gonna wait three hours to radio up to those other guards up there with this crazy psychopath you know i mean i i don't i don't know man like there's gonna be regular check-ins they never radio up to the guards to do that until the elevator goes up to five anyway it seems strange to me. It seems Omni really strange edit. that suddenly, suddenly they were quite lax about the security on, around Hannibal Lecter is all I'm saying. Suddenly they got real lazy. They decided to just be like, nah, it's cool. It's cool. We're yeah, look, 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 when they see Double something. Check when the they... movie, Noah. Double check the movie. And if I'm wrong, then you can cut all this out or uh, just leave a part where I, I have egg on my face. Yeah, no, but, you're, eating, uh, you're eating crow here. I think, I think Shara wins. Uh, Wendigo Shayra. all the way. Yeah, Shara, thank you. Wendigo <laughs> all the way. Shara this ex- win this? That, this expl- being Wendigo. a Wendigo explains this. She, oh, it, real Fast speed, puts the dude up, disembowels him, throws him. Like, within minutes, a Wendigo can do that, dude. A Wendigo could do that. Uh, a human could. And let us- let us not forget now that he also apparently has to force open the doors of an elevator. This elevator is on three and he's like putting his fingers, what, inside the little crack and just like getting in there. Have you ever tried to do that? Do you know how hard that is? That is hard. That is very hard. With a what, knife? With a knife? What are you talking about? Put the knife in the, uh, you put the knife, I, I am not going to teach serial killers how to escape from their cells on this podcast. But yes, you can do that relatively easily. All right, well let's let's close up shop. I I'm gonna give this movie a four out of five. Uh, I was debating four and a half out of five, but I want to say four out of five just because um, it. I mean, look, it's a, a very psychologically interesting movie. Um, it has it, it definitely well it has some of the best acting I'll say of any movie I think I've ever seen. Some of the shots are very unique. Uh, you know, people's face take up the entire screen. Think of the scenes with Crawford and Clarice, with Lecter and Clarice, uh, Buffalo Bill and Clarice. Like, there are shots where it's, it's everything's very intense in this movie. Uh, dialogue sequences are intense. It's very uh, intellectual and interesting and very stimulating conversations. There's a very... Uh, a, a very large puzzle in this movie that's to be completed. It just, it, it keeps your interest. Um, I, you know, it's 2019. I judge whether a movie is interesting or can keep my attention by if I put my phone down, if I'm not bullshitting on my phone, you know what I mean? And look, this is a movie from what the eighties uh, or early nineties rather. And I, I can't be on my phone when I'm watching this. I'm so into it. You know, um, it doesn't have the particular things that scare me necessarily, like really scare me deep down. Um, but that is not like a criticism of the movie at, in, in any way because people are different. Different things scare different people. Um, this is such a fucking good movie. I mean, I consider it a horror movie. A lot of people consider this a psychological thriller, police thriller. But this is a horror movie in in very many respects. Um 
So I got to give this a four out of five. Um, absolutely fantastic film with a lot of interesting themes. There's depth to it. There's a lot. Um, look, I, one of the things I always say is I love horror movies about transformation, about characters becoming something else. Buffalo Bill becoming something else. In this case, our protagonist, Clarice, and her transformation at the FBI and overcoming sort of uh, systemic issues that she has to face as a female. Um, a lot of political stuff, a lot of social stuff going on in this movie. Uh, very interesting to sort of take a 2019 perspective and throw it back into a 1991 perspective. Um, but it works, I think, in this film. So a lot of, lot of stuff going on in this movie. Uh, love it. Four out of five. Definitely would recommend. I give this film a four and a half out of five. This is way up there. This is one of the best films. It got the big five at the Oscars uh, for good reason. Uh, the shots are amazing. The lighting's amazing. The acting's amazing. It, like there's, you could talk endlessly about all the elements of it. Almost every scene can be dissected. We could talk about it for an hour. I know that for a fact. Like it's an amazing film. Um, and in fact, lots of other people do analysis of just a couple of scenes and it lasts for a half hour on YouTube. It seems to be the only film that I've found from all of the films we've watched where there are really long videos just going into little elements of each part of it. And so because of that, this is just an, a fantastic film to like get more information about things on. Um, but for me, this is also just a huge film in, in that it was a strong, powerful woman uh, who overcame things she wasn't the only strong woman who overcame things. Uh, we see the girl in the well overcome things and come up with innovative ways to to save herself. We see her mom use tactics to try to ensure that this monster sees her daughter as a person. Um, these are all very intelligent women, very strong women, very amazing women doing what they can in this evil man's world. Uh, so another thing that I thought was really interesting about this film is they had amazing um, special effects that you probably didn't even know were special effects like buffalo bill's nipple is not a real nipple the pierced nipple that you see is actually a fake prosthetic uh makeup nipple and so it's it and it looks really real so there, there's some really amazing people behind the film but the main thing that really stood out to me watching this again was that it's very prophetic we have an incel type character who feels entitled to women as objects and he is also uh, a neo-Nazi kind of uh, white supremacist guy. We see the swastikas on his pillowcase and a lot of anti-America rhetoric in other random parts of his uh, house. So he's very prophetic in that we see that this type of person tends to act out at women and act out at others and does it without care. And we actually see this in our world today very prevalent as an issue. So I feel like it was very prophetic or maybe this is just so always been going on and we're just now realizing how much these types of people are are predators and monsters on our planet um but i also like how hannibal's kind of a replacement dad for her she loses her father and hannibal is this guy who has come in and is going to help her with her career and help her become the best detective she can be there's so many different elements to this that add so much depth of story that you could go on and on and on about it. So I love this as a film that can draw in conversation and make you think about stuff for long periods of time. And I know we'll probably end up talking about this film again many, many times over. So I, I'm really glad you brought this film to us and we got to talk about it because it was great revisiting it and seeing it through my eyes as a recent 
Silence of the Lambs. Um, what can I really say about this movie that other people haven't already said before? You know, I mean, it's been analyzed a million times over. I really wish that I could dig something out of this that was deeper, as Noah's talked about a little bit uh, throughout this entire podcast. It really feels like there is something here. You know what I mean? And that's part of the magic, I think, of this movie is that, you know, no matter how many times you talk about this and think about it, it always seems like there's something a little bit more that sort of draws you back and makes you want to watch it again. Um, I don't know if I necessarily have the answer to that question, but I do know that I really think that they capture lightning in a bottle with this. And maybe that's a lot to do with Anthony Hopkins. One of the questions that I really did want to explore in our discussion was, you know, if, if his character wasn't in this movie, if there was no Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs, would it still be good? And I think it would be pretty good. Like, obviously, the, the directing is quite interesting. The story is is pretty good. Like, the, the themes of transformation are okay. But I really think a lot of this sort of relies on the dynamic that he specifically has with Clarice and, like, the interesting stuff that there is to say about uh, Anthony Hopkins and his portrayal of this character. I really think that that's why I enjoy this as much as I do. And I don't think I'm the only one. Um, you know, I think a lot of people would probably say the same thing about that. But overall, I really do absolutely love this movie. There aren't very many places where I would have to suspend disbelief. Maybe maybe in that one scene that we talked about earlier, maybe a little bit. But they don't use anything supernatural. It's not jump scares. It's something genuinely creepy that really, really gets in your head. It's well shot. Um, it's well thought out. And it's just a solid movie overall. I, I really do enjoy this. Um, and I think that if I were more... Um, sort of erudits about film study and about sort of like the technical aspects, I would probably rate it even higher. Like, like Jim, probably the reasons that he probably enjoys this movie, um, are beyond my understanding of film creation. <laughs> um, and if I had those elements, I think I would, uh, probably appreciate it a little bit more, but I think I'm probably going to be in line with Noah here and go ahead and give this a 4.5 or yeah, maybe a four out of five. Um, the reasons that I don't rank it, I think a little bit higher is just purely aesthetic reasons i think four is a fantastic rating for this film it's very high obviously i'm going to recommend it it's it's timeless um and i would honestly suggest anyone any any fans of horror this is going to be an absolute must watch okay so yeah i chose this movie um in part because i think it's technically perfect I think there isn't a frame of this movie that isn't incredibly well-directed. And I talked a lot about the magic tricks that this film pulls, one of which, of course, being that Hannibal Lecter is incredibly charming, but also a monster. But let's also talk about the scope of this movie. And it's... So uh, there are moments of this film that feel incredibly intimate, as though it is just a drama between two characters. And yet, at the same time, it has a geographic and political scope that is beyond the conflict of the two characters. So it is somehow able to be both intimate and global at the same time, which is an incredible magic trick. It's incredible to be able to pull that sleight of hand off that this this, this film is somehow able to do. Um, the performances are just amazing from, of course, Jodie Foster and her uh, ability to be both diminutive and powerful, her ability to be both naive and um, intelligent within her own world. It's important to note that even in that scene that Noah referenced earlier, where she was telling the uh, the cops in the room with um, the victim of the, the slaying, she said, um, go on now, go on now. 
um, which is a very specific and particular vernacular to those cops in that area. So she knows to understand their language and that it's her uh, ability to code switch between those those two areas. So she's able to be both incredibly naive in her scenes with Crawford and Lecter, but also incredibly worldly in her interactions with the uh, the Southern police officers. Hannibal Lecter is obviously one of the most famous villains in the history of horror films. Um, and that is both in part because he is so violent and monstrous as we see in, in his escape scenes, but also in the four scenes or three scenes, four scenes, sorry, uh, preceding that he is remarkably charming and worldly and lovely with Clarice and uh, vindictive in a understandable in human way with Chilton, but also uh, oddly cruel in his scene with uh, with with um, the uh, the senator. So I guess it's six scenes. Sorry, um, but those those are like there's complexity in dimension to his character, and even in Buffalo Bill, which gets uh, Ted Levine gets not enough credit for his performance in this film. He is a incredible actor. Uh, he later. Uh, played the uh, the police officer on Monk, and he worked to sort of ground that series. Um, he is phenomenal in this movie. Um, even in the 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 line where he's like, uh, "We was she a great big old fat lady?" Like that was this moment of both prejudice and humor, and uh, and 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 genuine interest and creepiness as well, because we know that's how he sees women and how he sees the world. Uh, we've obviously talked about all of the feminist themes associated with this film, and those ring true today, as Shaver pointed out in her closing arguments, and as we pointed out in the podcast. I think this film is both technically perfect. I usually reserve five star films for uh, films that impact me personally or affect me personally. Um, this is not a film that necessarily affects me personally, except for the fact that I definitely want to be as sophisticated as Hannibal Lecter without all the cannibal shit. But uh, I, uh, aside from that, this film doesn't affect me personally, but technically it is just brilliant. And that's why I give it a five out of five stars. All right. Well, hey, uh, thanks for taking the time to uh, watch our Silence of the Lambs podcast. Uh, hey, if you liked what you saw today, uh, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We do uh, we do in-depth reviews and analyses of good horror films. And what the hell is Silence of the Lambs but not a fantastic horror film highly rated by all of us? Uh, so check us out on our social media. We try to do this every week. Um, and if you like what we do, send us a comment, hit that bell, the subscribe button. That is how we know you dig what we do. And, uh, we will see you guys next week for our next movie. Take care. That was good.